Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, good day once again, and welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute, also hosted on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Eras, and I am joined once again by Dr. Joe Boot, and we are here to uh, work towards the next installment in our uh, our mini series on Thomism and Thomas Aquinas. Today, our uh, our subject, Joe, is gonna gonna bring you back to uh, to some of your roots. Uh, you uh, you cut your teeth really in uh, Christian evangelism and apologetics, and our subject today is is Thomas and apologetics, the apologetic uh, methodology that can be discerned in his work, the uh, the response to it, the and the way that that has uh, developed and been adapted and continues to be in uh, continues to be used in a lot of a lot of cases down to this day, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk just a bit about some of the uh, some of the other apologetics approaches and a way that uh, that we believe that scripture. Uh, teaches and provides principles for for engaging in the apologetic task. So, by Sounds God's good. help, that's where we're uh, we're going today. And why uh, why don't we start uh, at the you know at the risk of being redundant, but for the fear of advertising falsely, let's start with uh, Thomistic apologetics. Uh, is it uh, first of all is it is it uh, accurate or is it a little bit anachronistic to talk about Thomas as an apologist? Well, I think in the um, early discussions, um, if people sort of cast their minds back a couple of months, and we sort of did a bit of an orientation for a couple of weeks to to Thomas, mm-hmm. um, we can see that there was a missiological purpose in much of what he was doing. And um, I think he deserves real credit there. Uh, you'll recall that um, he was given, you know, an assignment by the church, a job That's description right. to interpret Aristotle for the church. And one of the reasons they wanted to do that is that the um, the Islamists, the Muslims, were employing Aristotle to some effect. The Arab world was taking the work of Aristotle and employing it and actually developing various arguments for the Islamic concept of God, um, the Kalam cosmological argument and others. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, you know, the Western church, the Roman Catholic church was looking for some resourcement here. Um, and Thomas Aquinas was also wanting to, uh, in his work, um, reach the, the Muslim world. How, how could he reach the Muslim mind? And how also could he uh, engage the the humanistic um, mindset that may be still committed to the older the older forms of uh, Greek thought that may be a threat to the church? And how could he um, uh, employ the resources of of Aristotle in particular, the philosopher as he calls him, um, to positive effect in engagement with Muslims? So. I think in there's a sort of yes and no to your question there. Um, in one sense, it's anachronistic because the uh, what we come to think of today as 
um, apologetics is a fair bit more, I think, actually um, shouldn't be, but is is largely thought of in a much more narrow sense than the project taken on by Aris, by uh, Thomas in the in the Summa. That's right. Um, it's a much it's you know, but then you could go back to the early apologists in the church, um, and you could think about people like Origen. Um, and uh, Justin Martyr, and of course, Augustine himself, and the City of God, and, and other early church apologists who were often um, approaching the defense of the faith in these much more um, cosmological, um, cosmic, we might say, uh, terms in, in terms of a much bigger, broader picture of the task. So um, in one sense, if we were thinking about, you know, Christian apologetics narrowly, is is Aquinas a Christian apologist? Well, not really in the modern narrow sense, uh, but perhaps yes in the more original sense. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a broader thinker, a thinker um, uh, concerned with the the idea of law for created reality, of of a whole system of thought, um, and of uh, the the relationship between the Christian concepts of God and pagan and Islamic views and so on. So so there's a yes and no there, um, but he deserves credit for the missiological purpose of, of using his mind to try and engage with um, the Muslim world in particular. Right. No, that's, uh, that's, that's a good point. It's a very, uh, very nuanced response. Appreciate that, Joe. Um, <laughs> One of, you say uh, that with a degree of cynicism. <laughs> oh, who me? Or suspicion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, it's uh, okay. Uncharacteristically nuanced. Uh, <laughs> is that <laughs> does that clarify? I hope I've crystallized uh, that. Uh, uh, I read you. <laughs> I read you. Um, Saying there's a chance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. With uh, with the, with that said about uh, about Thomas and his his own body of work directly, uh, it is uh, it is no secret that that the approach uh, modeled by Thomas has lent itself to and has lar- largely inspired and continues to to inform uh, what has uh, what's come to be known uh, and in the more narrow sense, uh, as, as you're thinking about apologetics, but has come to be known as the, the rationalist or the classical, uh, approach to apologetics. And yeah, that's right. The, go ahead, go ahead. C- certainly the, um, the, 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 the classical apologists even today, I mean, if you think of, um, uh, sort of the popular, uh, apologists such as, um, Norman Geisler and William Lane Craig in America and so on. Mm-hmm. These, um, that tradition, these people would look very self-consciously back to Thomas Aquinas um, and would still employ a very similar um, uh, arguments, um, cosmological arguments from motion and causation to the ones developed by uh, Thomas himself. And in fact, um, Thomas is quite famous for his five ways um, yeah. in which he seeks a, a defense of the idea of God, or he would say a proof for the existence of God. And um, again, you can see at least three of these are drawn directly from, from Aristotle. 
um, the basic principles here, we, we might talk about three principles that underlie his proofs for God. Um, and because he sees these proofs as laws of being, which is connected to what we've talked about before, about how Aquinas sees the world, sees reality, um, they're valid for everything that exists, and that includes God. Remember, we talked about the, this sort of hierarchy of being that's implicit in Thomas's view of reality. Yeah, that ex- existence is existence, in the, uh, and, and reality. There's one reality that exists in this kind of hierarchy, and so he would talk about um, first of all that there is enough reason for existence as a fundamental principle. Secondly, that there is a cause for existence. Um, And thirdly, that the series from which something stems can't go on indefinitely. You cannot have an infinite regress of causes. And so he has a proof from movement, um, a proof from cause, causation, a proof from necessity, a proof from perfection, and uh, a proof of a final aim, a kind of teleological argument of sorts, if you if you like. And all of these uh, proofs, and we don't need to, we haven't got time to talk about all of them in any detail, but they all follow a similar pattern um, that uh, motion within creation indicates a first immovable mover, and that is God in Aquinas' terms, and that creaturely causes refer to a first uncaused cause, and then that imperfection in the cosmos in the cosmos presupposes a perfect being. So God's the first cause, he's the prime mover, and he's the absolute perfect one. Um, and uh, I think that Aquinas sees the sort of value in in this basic structure of an argument as that it supposedly begins with human experience and human reason, man's natural reason. Um, and as such, um, the, the, your, your, because of your starting point in natural reason, all of these proofs um, would end up with uh, a being that is acceptable as God by everybody. Uh, because this God is so, relatively speaking, I mean, it's not completely content-free, but relatively content-free, this sort of, mm-hmm. this sort of um, first cause, unmoved mover out of Aristotle that is being established here. Uh, Aquinas feels that the value here is in the notion that everybody will, could accept this, this chain of natural reasoning as being... Uh, ending in a concept that everybody could accept as God. Um, he doesn't really try and prove what God is like specifically here because he would see that as a task for um, supernatural Christian theology. But this, this this notion that, you know, you just prove that God exists. And I've actually heard uh, apologists like William Lane Craig making that very argument. He'll start by saying, I'm not trying to prove the Christian God here. Right. I'm just trying to prove... Uh, the idea that God exists. Well, of course, there's a very serious problem with that. Um, uh, The Bible has no interest in proving a vacant, vacuous, empty concept, rational concept of God. Um, It's only interested in the living God, uh, in the triune God of Scripture. 
And um, I'm not sure that there is any way to prove a simply that a God exists without investing that God with very specific content, without that, without that concept being so empty as to say nothing and therefore be kind of meaningless. But, but we've, we've heard these arguments specifically advanced. And then um, the, uh, the, 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 the only content you really arrive at uh, from this is that uh, God is a first mover. He's the uncaused cause. He's the cause of perfection. And um, you can see that that is, when we talk about perfection, we're talking about, you know, the true, the good, the beautiful. These are, again, uh, the, the, the absolute perfect one, um, this unconditioned um, being. Um, so actually, interestingly, Doyverd says that the Aristotelian Thomistic proofs for the existence of God really form one single proof. Um supposed proof um mm. whether it starts with motion or it starts with cause it starts with causation or whether it starts with the idea of perfection and um he essentially what's going on here ryan with with the argument is thomas is trying to move from the diversity of things the diversity of experience in in created reality and he's trying to ascend straight past plato's idea of abstract forms uh, as as the basis of unity amidst the multiplicity directly to the uh, a sort of pseudo-Christian idea of God. So he's trying to Christianize Plato's concept and, uh, sorry, um, um, Aristotle's concept. And like Aristotle, he's moving directly past Plato's idea of some kind of intermediary absolute forms mm. and going directly to... Um, the the absolute and only form of being the deity, uh, uh, and uh, that's really what his five ways are are driving at. And um, you know, when I remember in my early days myself as a Christian apologist, how um, even as somebody who'd become reformed in my thinking and being involved, as you said, in the work of evangelism and apologetics, trying to utilize these arguments, yeah, and being yeah. Um, profoundly frustrated. Um, I would I would go on almost as far as to say at a certain point disillusioned and unconvinced mm -hmm. <laughs> by my own argumentation. But these at the time were the only sorts of arguments in in, in a variety of nuanced forms that that seemed uh, available to me. Yeah, no, and I've uh, I've had a very similar experience <clears throat> in in my own reading as somebody who's had an interest in apologetics. And uh, parenthetically, uh, Ezra Press, we just released uh, the 20th anniversary edition of your book, uh, A Time to Search. And uh, I I, meant, I say exactly this in the uh, the introduction to this new new edition that uh, we we basically you. Uh, on the one hand, the the proofs uh, that uh, that you've laid out from Thomas here they they make sense. They're compelling. They're comprehensive. You know the the argument argumentation is tight. But at when you uh, when you get down to it, all all you've really demonstrated is that every hierarchy has something at the top. 
which That's is right. which is tautological, which isn't uh, you know isn't really proving anything. It's proving its own definition. Uh, yes, that's quite an insightful point. In fact, um, that's one that you may not be aware that Doiverd himself made. Um, oh, I'm not uh, not aware of the... that. I was not aware of that, Joe. <laughs> you are now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that this is part of the issue here is that when you really come down to it, the um, the the conclusion is presupposed in the in the premise and what looks like a sort of a tight argument is already presupposing all this Greek metaphysics. And what I've, uh, what, and you, you've, you've observed this as well, but you know, over the past 20 years or so, we've seen the, uh, what's called the new atheists, you know, guys like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, uh, boom in popularity and then sort of, enter the mainstream of, of thought. And these, uh, what they're all, you know, they're all pantheists and Buddhists now, but, uh, yeah. they're, they're noticing like no, no one, as far as, as far as I'm aware is, is a true dyed in the wool materialist, atheistic, uh, atheistic materialist these days. No one, everyone acknowledges that there's, there's more than, the purely physical, you know, whether what, what we call that, uh, is a matter of dispute, but the fact that there is some sort of contentless personality, less first mover is not, uh, not a thing that anyone needs, needs to be proven to them anymore. Yeah. There's certainly the case that, um, there's all kinds of what we might call spirituality, a foot right. within the within the sort of new atheism and yeah you know, certainly Sam Harris I would say you know you take a uh, his book for example waking up mm-hmm. um, where he really does uh, come out effectively as a Buddhist in there um, and interestingly actually um, all the cosmological argument of Aquinas really ends up doing is proving a kind of pantheism we'll come to that in just a moment which is interesting in and of itself um, so I think all of these arguments that begin purely with the notion of an autonomous human reason uh, are are problematic. And I think, um, I mean, actually, Immanuel Kant, uh, with whom I profoundly disagree in so many areas, um, ended up making the point about the these um, Thomistic classical arguments that they all end up uh, with a concept of the highest and the most real being that transcends all the boundaries of our experience, um, but that is still hypostasized into a real existing being. So he's basically saying hmm. that the that really these arguments from causation, from motion, from perfection, all are really a kind of a form of the ontological argument where the being is sort of basically presupposed and then um you know the concept the highest most real the sort of final being and then is hypostasized into existence which was the 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 sort of criticism the primary criticism of the ontological argument although that would be an interesting show in itself to discuss um Mm -hmm. the various versions of the the way the ontological argument's been framed and the, the responses to it i think it's quite intriguing in some respects but 
But um, Kant is right here about really what the Thomistic arguments resolve into. Um, and uh, it's, you know, over time, I, I remember um, when I discovered a different way of going about apologetics through the Reformational tradition and overcoming first my own sense of relief that there was a, uh, well, what I first discovered w- w- was this this sense of relief, like putting on a jacket that really fitted, that there was mm. a way of, you know, 20, 27 years ago um, of approaching apologetics. It wasn't quite that long ago, 25. Uh, that um, that uh, seemed to be firmly grounded in scripture and the living God of the Bible, not some abstract rationalistic concept of God. Um, and then the relief that I didn't have to rely on what seemed to me profoundly weak arguments to my own mind um, when dealing with uh, apologetics and, and, and unbelievers uh, in the universities and in various contexts. And um, the, the, the profound sense of, um, of uh, discovering a methodology that was actually faithful to what I fundamentally believed, rather than having to adopt a methodology that was in conflict with what I fundamentally believed, um, and thinking that that methodology could be used to climb up to the, to the most basic Christian foundational assumptions about reality. So I think sometimes the, the non-believers have been a bit more honest about the, the, the value or lack of value of these particular kinds of arguments. And um, in the early days, in um, many of my debates on the existence of God, the people that I was debating, usually philosophy professors from various universities or heads of uh, humanist societies and associations, came to those arguments prepared to address these arguments, these classical Thomistic arguments. Right. Um, mm-hmm. They did not come prepared to address reformational presuppositional argumentation mm-hmm. and were usually flummoxed and seriously wrong-footed by it. Um, so, I mean... Apart from Kant's uh, immediate uh, criticism that these, the, all these proofs seem to reduce to a kind of ontological proof of, of a highest, first, um, an abstract, largely contentless being, one of the questions that first strikes you when you're reading these arguments is where does Aquinas get this idea that God is the things that he deduces from his proofs. I mean, where does the Bible talk about God as simply um, the uh, a, a first a, a first mover, an unmoved mover? Right. That is because because uh, Thomas's idea of an unmoved mover here is being drawn from the Aristotelian notion that God is pure form. Um, and isn't and don't forget matter in Aristotelianism is the principle of imperfection, and it still is a principle of imperfection in Thomas. So the the being that's at the back the, or at the, the 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 top of this hierarchy is, in a certain sense, here associated in Aquinas with pure form, um, and so is associated with intellect and with will but not really associated with emotion, with sensibility, um, with, with, the, with the God that we encounter in the Bible. 
who mm-hmm. who communicates so much in those terms. Um, the the this this God um, that is deduced from this sort of so called logical and it is a it is a logical deduction, sure. Uh, within this hierarchy, is 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 rooted in this form matter scheme. Ultimately, this synthesis with the form matter scheme and a God that is pure form. Pure will, pure intellect, but not really um, sensibility, emotion. Aquinas wants to shy away from any association of God with anything that arises from what we would call material, sensible experience. Um, and so uh, you, you really get the impression as you read it, and as a Christian, certainly if you're a Christian who's rooted in the Bible, as you as you read these arguments, you don't get the sense of a, of the God of the Bible. You get the sense of the God of Aristotle. The God of the Bible is replaced by this pagan, heathen conception of a God, or at least blended with it. It's an it's an impersonal deity. Think about it: a a prime mover, a first cause at the end of a long chain of um, causes of temporal causes at that. Um, a God who is the absolute perfection or absolute good. So another abstraction Mm -hmm. uh, from human experience, but within Greek philosophy, an idea of absolute perfection. What kind of relationship can this um, absolute good have with ordinary human beings, relative human beings who are not absolute good? Um, this is um this is a this is a serious problem as you think about this conception of god and perhaps i think the most um telling objection to my mind from our reformational standpoint is that um if god is sort of sits at the top of this continuous hierarchy of being that begins for thomas don't forget with the observable world so he's down in the observable world and he's trying this chain of reasoning ostensibly. Actually, what's happening is he's, be- he's ultimately got this idea at the root at the beginning of his argument. But he's, just, he's ostensibly arguing from the observable world of movement or causation. Um, and if this is a hierarchy, remember existence, existence is existence. Their um, reality is one in his concept of existence in this hierarchy of being begins with this observable world. Is he not now including in the created world, God, instead of being distinct from it, if God is at the beginning of a temporal series of causes as an uncaused cause or a um, prime mover within a hierarchy of being, how is God not now included with this temporal world. It seems to me that, as we've said before in our series on Aquinas, and this happens repeatedly in his thought, that the distinction between God and creation doesn't seem to be properly upheld. Um, And I think, in the end, the leap, the step that he wants to take between the finite and the infinite, between the temporal and the eternal, is not a valid one biblically. Mm. And so, which is why I said earlier that in this hierarchy of being with God at the the beginning of a series of causes or movement, 
um, his arguments prove pantheism if they prove anything. Right. Yeah. That God is simply an aspect of the creation and pervades everything. Um, and so if you're going to maintain the Bible's distinction between God and his creation, I think it's actually inadmissible to simply call God a cause or, or God a prime mover, a prime mover of, of sort of cosmic phenomena. And I think that's fundamentally where um, uh, Aquinas falls short. I did want to just quote something that Doivard says in his book, Reformation and Scholasticism in Philosophy, um, in, which I think is a marked contrast to what um, Thomas was doing uh, in, yeah, this sort let's of, have it. in sort of this temporal... Um, uh, trying to sort of eternalize something temporal uh, in co- with causation. Doivard says, the work of God in creation, in his creation, completely transcends human understanding. Oh, there's an interesting sentence. Hmm. Um, and this is our fundamental problem as reformational thinkers with the rationalistic apologetic, um, with rationalistic thought. It doesn't recognize that the work of God in creation completely transcends human understanding. It wants to make, reduce God in these Greek categories. He goes on, um, but according to the revealed word, it is no less the original fullness of work, activity in the primal meaning of the word, of which all human activity is but a weak shadow. That is, he's talking about the work of God in creation. He says, the theoretical rest of Aristotle's first unmoved mover, so this God at rest, is the radical opposite of the active God who reveals himself in his word. My father worketh hitherto, and I work, John 5, 17. Mm-hmm. So I think that gets to the, to the rub. First of all, there's in, in, in these rationalistic arguments, there's just a, a, a failure to appreciate the, the way in which God's work in creation transcends our understanding, um, that it contradicts the revealed um, word in its description of the fullness of work, um, of which our work is just a shadow so we can look at our own, which is why God communicates in these terms. He talks about work and rest. Well, God's, when we think about human work, our work is a shadow of God's work that transcends our full ability to comprehend, but it is in some way reflects the reality of human work. Um, and that's the radical opposite of, 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 of Thomas's God. Um, my father works... And I work. That's what Jesus said. So I think that in some respects gets to the rub. We've got this illegitimate move from the finite to, to the infinite, from the, from, from, the, from the temporal to the eternal. And we've got this failure to appreciate the radical mystery of creation. And we've got a mischaracterization of God as some at rest, unmoved, uh, insensible uh, being who, in strict terms, would not n- even know that it had created anything. Hence, it, it really proves this pantheistic conception of God, and so it becomes very, I think, unhelpful 
in seeking to establish the Christian conception of God as revealed in the Bible, and as Van Til would say, in the ontological trinity revealed right. in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. So I, <clears throat> I, I want you to uh, say more about. You, so you uh, you were you were struggling personally, even as a as a Christian believer and apologist, with uh, with using these arguments that you could you could tell. Uh, not to not entirely, but at some level, you could tell they were they were inadequate. They were in some ways contrary to the God we see revealed in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And you've just you've just described your relief at uh, at being introduced to Doiverd, Van Til, and others uh, in the Reformational apologetics tradition. Uh, s- say some more about that because that that's largely where where you continue to find yourself. Mm-hmm. How how did that solve your difficulties? Mm-hmm. Well, fundamentally, the direction of the classical approach, as you know, Ryan, is the notion that you can start with the autonomous human reason, you start with natural reason, and you start with an idea of bare facts, mm-hmm. of observable human experience, of bare factuality. And from there, you can somehow, through a sort of blockhouse method, build your way up to a conception of God. And then when you get there, you then start to go about trying to establish the Christian idea of God over against other ideas of God. And so you have to surrender a number of things there. First of all, we've t- we've already, I've already said the, the creator-creature distinction, the clarity of that is surrendered. Mm. Um, we... Um, we end up surrendering in spe- specifically the, the, the unique character and content of the Christian understanding of God. And so when I, uh, in my sense of disappointment, frustration, a certain amount of disillusionment with this apologetic discovered the reformational understanding and tradition in apologetics, which really we might say, yes, you could trace its origin to Augustine and John Calvin, Um, but, um, in terms of its formation, in terms of philosophy and apologetics, you'd have to start with Abraham Kuyper and then, um, Doiverd and Van Til, um, who of course Van Til focused specifically in the area of Christian apologetics does not pretend because the Bible doesn't pretend that there is any such thing as a neutral reason or that um, fallen sinful man um, is confronted with bare factuality or brute factuality in the created order, but is at all times and in all places surrounded by the reality of God's presence, of God's created order, of God's law. Um, And when you think about the very idea of an autonomous reason, autonomous means a law to itself, when we go about human reasoning and human argumentation, we're always conscious of the fact that we are bound by and expect to be bound by um, laws of reasoning or thought that are that, that bind the conversation partners in the possibility of an intelligible exchange that, that make the very idea of argument possible that we do not prescribe to debate or to scholarship law um, ourselves, but we find ourselves 
bound by it. So we might think about laws of thought that are binding on the conversation partners. Now, if but if you accept that when you come to logical and rational discourse, you are bound by um, laws of thought so that you, you can't simply be arbitrary, you cannot simply be illogical, you can't be unreasonable, and you can't enter any kind of debate with a non-believer or an atheist and expect to be allowed to get away with that, which is self-contradictory from their, for in, in their situation, actually, as it happens. <laughs> but as soon as you acknowledge, and here's their problem, as soon as you acknowledge that we're all bound by uh, these laws for uh, human reasoning and thinking, then you are admitting the non-autonomy of human thought. You're admitting that it isn't a law unto itself. And so um, from, the, from the very beginning, um, we mustn't, the, 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 the reformational approach refuses to surrender this ground to humanism, to enlightenment rationalism, to unbelief, that you can simply have law, have order, have structure, um, in thought, which is somehow then confronting a brute, uninterpreted, um, uh, non-disordered um, or chaotic reality in human experience. And that then somehow you're able to, the non-believer is able to relate the ideas of law that he has in his mind to a chaotic existence that he is now going to give order to it when in fact his own mind, his own reasoning is part of that order. <laughs> so, um, so what solved this problem for me, Ryan, um, what brought that sense of relief was realizing that we can and must begin with the triune God of Scripture and his revelation. That we, the Bible never allows us to say that we confront an autonomous man. No, he's a creature of God bound by his law or that we confront neutral reason. No, we always confront man uh, religiously with what Doivod calls ground motives, a religious ethos, a world and life view which governs what he's going to do with the so-called facts. Hmm. And the reality that there are no brute, uninterpreted facts. Um, there is nothing that is, because there is nothing that is uncreated, um, and therefore, there is nothing that is neutral or brute. Creation is meaning, as Doiverd would say, as Van Til would, would say. Creation is meaning as creatures embedded within creation, including our thinking. We, we are in structure uh, and we are, we are confronted by meaning. We don't lend the world a meaning. We don't give it a meaning. And the reason that reality is in any way intelligible to us and that we can even have a debate is because creation is meaning. And I suddenly realized mm -hmm. that I didn't have to con confront the apologetic task inauthentically, hypocritically, um, or um, pretending that somebody could set themselves, set fundamental core convictions, worldviews aside, and just reason neutrally, rationally from bare experience to some vacuous concept of God. But that apologetics must confront people with the reality of the triune God 
and with the story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, consummation in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that's our true and real environment. That's the environment of all human beings, that self-consciousness, as Calvin argues in book one of the Institutes, is in, is, uh, presupposes God-consciousness. And so trying to prove directly mm. the existence of God from so-called bare facts of nature contradicts the Bible, contradicts human experience. Psalm 19 tells us all of creation speaks. Paul says in Romans 1 that there's no issue of man knowing God, that there is a God as such. His problem is that he suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. And so the problem of unity and multiplicity that the Greeks were striving with and that Aquinas is still trying to overcome is dealt with with the ontological trinity, that is the, the eternal relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the counsel of, their, of God's will of the eternal decree of God within creation, where um, unity and multiplicity has its origin in God himself, and the mystery of God's creation is the, the free creation, uh, the mystery of the free creation of the ontological trinity. And so the proof for God, if you will, um, the, the, the reality uh, of, of confronting human beings with the indefensibility of their situation, they've got no, as Paul says, apologetic, no defense for not acknowledging God, right. is not a direct mm -hmm. direct proof from human reason as though you can say, well, look at these bare facts and see if they don't add up to the plausibility of the, or the balance of probability that God probably exists, which is where these arguments conclude that somehow God is maybe the inference to the best explanation, an inference to the best explanation of the existence of reality from brute fact. You can see how if you, if you start there and you say well, there are these bare facts that if you reason about them will lead you to um, a probabilistic concept of God. How that fundamentally con contradicts where you want to get people to, which is that we are everywhere confronted with the reality of God and there are no brute facts. So how can you start with brute factuality and then end with a conclusion that says there are no brute facts? Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's fundamentally problematic to argue in those terms. And um, I realized that, I could simply go in to my apologetic task unashamedly with the presupposition, with the reality, with the, with the religious worldview of the Bible, with the claims of, with, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I didn't have to do this um, direct approach and pretend that you can prove God from these bare facts, but rather the proof was indirect. That is, the, the apologist is not on the back foot but is actually on the front foot, which is here is the reality of who God is. Here's what scripture says. Here's who the Lord Jesus Christ is and claims to be. Now you, unbeliever, try and make sense of reality without the living God of the Bible. And the task then of apologetics becomes primarily an internal critique of the non-believer's perspective and mm -hmm. showing how it is it fails how it collapses because it always ends up trying to, to deify some aspect of creation, absolutizes some aspect of creation, trying to make that the root and ground, the origin of meaning, and fails, doesn't satisfy the preconditions of intelligibility. 
Um, and so the task of the apologist is to strip away those defenses of the, of the unbeliever, of the idolater, to, uh, uh, revealing the fact that the last one standing, the only one who can stand, uh, is the only one that does stand, is the claims of the, live, of the living God manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that everything else fails um, to be intelligible in terms of the apologetic task, which is which is which is the task of seeking to show people that uh, they have no defence uh, against the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can see how that is a very very different orientation in apologetics to the classical model that um, finds some of its grounding in in Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. And one one of the things that uh, that I've heard you say several times in uh, in lectures here and there is that uh, the 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 Christian apologetic task is uh, what you've just uh, what you've just described. Uh, it's it is not uh, how it's been come to sort to be uh, popularly understood as a uh, sort of intellectual Christian ninjutsu where you, uh, you, know, right. you storm and overwhelm with sophisticated argumentation. Uh, so it's actually part, part of the relief that, uh, that I think a lot of people might feel is that, you know, just because I don't have you know, a degree in philosophy doesn't mean that I can't be an apologist. Right. And the fact that you don't, that's a great point. The fact that you don't have an ex- exhaustive knowledge of, um, a uh, human archaeology, or yep. the text of the New Testament, or the nuances of um, the claims of evolutionary biology, um, or you haven't got all of the theodicies for the problem yep. of evil down pat, and so on. It, re- it it releases people to be effective witnesses and to em- and employ an apologetic. So we don't want to. Um, uh, make uh, uh, excuses about um, not being aware of evidences and those things. That's not the purpose. But it is critical that we recognize that our faith and, and, and our defense of the faith does not rest on the encyclopedic character of our knowledge of various evidences or various arguments. It rests on the foundation of the word in the Lord Jesus Christ and the challenge that the gospel makes to the unbeliever. Our faith can be encouraged and strengthened um, by all kinds of evidences, and that's a blessing. And it's good to know some of those and good to be able to share some of those um, uh, riches with unbelievers when we share it in the context of a Christian world and life view. But not as, uh, uh, as though we can take rationalistic arguments and evidences and make our way up to God in some sort of neutral fashion. Let me um, conclude my comments on that, Ryan, by just um, quoting... Um, from the Mission of God, my book, Mission of God, in which I deal extensively with the, the topic of the confirmation and defense of the gospel of, of Christian apologetics. Yeah, this, just is a, this is a good section. Actually, if you hadn't brought it up, I was going to bring it up. So this, uh, let, let's conclude with this. Yeah, and people might like to, to be aware too that we have a monograph um, for the hope that is in you. That's right. Uh, that, uh, that deals specifically with this. And so if you don't want to part with the $40 for mission of God, which we would encourage you to do, um, you can part with a few bucks just for this, uh, this the short booklet that deals with this. 
Um, but I, I put it this way in Mission of God, I say, and I quote now, in the presuppositional theological outlook, outlook the basic assumption is that for human beings, self-consciousness presupposes God-consciousness, and therefore spending time trying to prove God's existence directly is redundant. Rather, beginning with the ontological trinity, we, we seek to show that, quote, we either begin with the self-contained God and his eternal decree as man's ultimate environment, as derived from scripture, or we assume that chance is ultimate, in which case man can know nothing unless he knows everything. And to know everything is especially an impossibility in an evolving universe in which potentiality and possibility are unlimited. For Van Til, it was impossible for people to suspend judgment and reason from self-evident arguments and brute facts, because all people have pre-theoretical commitments Every idea and sense datum is inescapably interpreted in terms of an overarching paradigm. In presuppositionalism, then, the apologist is urged to recognize that all ideas and arguments are located within a synoptic view of reality within which they make sense, so that our starting point, method, and conclusion are always involved in each other. Consequently, facts are what they are as part of the Christian system of two, truth. Facts are what they are because God is what he is. This method then is not underpinned by an enlightenment story of human rational autonomy and a self-explanatory nature, but a biblical one under the sovereign trinity who made, sustains, and governs all things by his own authority. That's that's great, Joe. I think that's uh, that's an excellent place to conclude and... I guess to, uh, I guess to sum up, to put it into a sentence, it is a, uh, it is it is a question of ontology, but it's uh, it's a question of uh, ontological priority and who is God. And you sort of to uh, to put the question in that way with a who, with that personal uh, pronoun, is to uh, you know is to arrive at a completely different conclusion than what is. You know what is the uh, deity? The, yeah, the inference to the best possible explanation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah, I like that way of I like that way of putting it. It's the we cannot separate the question of whether there is a God from who is God. Yeah, I like that, and that uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the difficulties uh, in questions of apologetics get resolved when you uh, when you answer that correctly. Well, Joe, thanks, uh, thanks so much for being here. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, from all of us here at the Ezra Institute, at the podcast for Cultural Reformation, uh, we remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. May God be glorified. We'll look forward to being with you again next week. <laughs>